I am Michael Brent at Observe the Word, and we are interpreting the Pentateuch. Our text is Numbers 21 through 25. The reports of grumbling in the book of Numbers end with the plague of serpents described in the first half of chapter 21. No more grumbling. But we're not quite done with the first generation. Their end is described in chapter 26 after the taking of the second census. We get this report in 2664 to 65. But among these there was not a man of those who were numbered by Moses and Aaron the priest, who numbered the sons of Israel in the wilderness of Sinai. For the Lord had said of them, They shall surely die in the wilderness. And not a man was left of them except Caleb the son of Jephunneh and Joshua the son of Nun. From that last report of grumbling to this second census, that's from chapter 21 through chapter 25, the narrative is transitioning from the first generation to the second. The transition starts and ends well, highlighting the faithfulness of the second generation. But in between, we get the odd and intriguing story of Balaam. First, let's look at how the Israelites get settled beside the Jordan River, just outside the Promised Land, and then we'll concentrate in on Balaam. The transition from one generation to the next starts with a major victory for the Israelites. The River Jordan is the eastern border of the Promised Land. It runs fairly straight from north to south with a sea on either end. So starting from the Sea of Galilee in the north, the river flows due south into the Dead Sea. And that straight parallel line has four perpendicular lines jutting out to the east away from the Promised Land. These four rivers, the Zered, Arnon, Jabok, and Yarmouk form the boundaries of the peoples who live just east of Canaan. The Zered pokes out from the bottom of the Dead Sea, marking the boundary between Edom and Moab. The Arnon juts out halfway up the Dead Sea, marking the boundary between Moab and the Amorite king Sihon. Above Sihon is another Amorite king named Og. And the Moabites used to have more land, but Sihon took it from them. That'll be an issue later. In Numbers 21:21, the Israelites have completed their journeys around Edom and around Moab. God forbade them to fight with those two peoples. They've crossed over the Arnon River into Amorite territory. And they make it all the way up past the Dead Sea before being confronted by Sihon. And when he challenges them, the Israelites ask for passage through his territory to continue further up the Jordan and then cross over into the Promised Land. Sihon doesn't trust them. And in those days, it's hard to blame him. Um, or maybe he's tempted by the potential plunder. For whatever reason, he says no and attacks. But this hardened generation of desert wanderers is no easy prey. More importantly, they've got God on their side. And they defeat Sihon and they take all his territory from the Arnon River up north to the Jab Oak, which sticks out halfway up the Jordan River. The captured territory includes already established towns and cultivated vineyards and livestock. The Israelites decide to keep going, and they take the next section of land as well, from the Jabok all the way to the Yarmouk, which pokes out of the Sea of Galilee. So now they're from Dead Sea all the way up to Sea of Galilee. And at that point, the Amorite king, King Og, opposes them, and he pays for it. They take possession of his land. In the Bible, it's the land of Bashan, which extends north even further past the Sea of Galilee. Today, that land is known as the Golan Heights. With all this strategic highland to the east of the Promised Land now in their possession, Israel makes camp in the plains of Moab 
across the Jordan from Jericho. They took this land from Sihon, but we are told that Sihon had taken it from Moab. So Moab has a double problem with Israel. They're terrified witnessing the fighting capabilities of this large nation that's now camped to their north. And the Israelites are camped in territory they claim as their own. And this is going to set up the intriguing story, the story of Balaam's blessing, or probably better known as Balaam and the donkey. We start with Balaam being humbled in Numbers 22, 1 through 35. Afraid to engage battle with Israel, Balak, the king of Moab, comes up with a strategy to gain an upper edge. The strategy fits ancient Near Eastern worldview that battles are in reality fought by the gods. That's the most important battle, which is only mirrored on earth by men. The key is to turn a nation's god against that nation or to get the god to flee so Balak sends for spiritual aid to the internationally renowned Balaam, a famous prophet, diviner, living far up north near the Euphrates River. The land of the two rivers is one of two seats of ancient civilization in this whole region. The other is down south in Egypt. Up north, power changes hands as the centuries pass from the empire of Ur in the time of Abraham to the old Assyrian and the old Babylonian empires who both lose power only to regain it again when we have the new Assyrian and new Babylonian empires to be overthrown in turn by the Persians. But it's almost like the culture just kind of stays the same. It passes from owner to owner, but there's this continuous, there's this continuous Mesopotamian seat of culture that was begun thousands of years before by the Sumerians. And by the time of Moses, these civilizations, they're looking back on 1,500 years of recorded, written history. So I don't think it's surprising that a prophet of international renown would live in the vicinity of this northern center of ancient Near East culture. Originally, the people between the two rivers were ethnic Sumerians, but a couple hundred years before Abraham, Amorite barbarians invaded, taking control of such venerated places as the city of Babylon, and mixed in with the Sumerians, making the region bilingual. These Amorites are Semites, a linguistic designation that puts their language in the same family as Hebrew. So Balaam was likely from a Semitic group, just as Abraham before him had been. The distance from Moab to Balaam's home would have been significant, about 725 kilometers or 450 miles. One way might take a messenger a month. Balak's messengers make the trip. Here's the first interaction between the messengers of Balak, king of Moab, and the famous, probably Semitic, prophet diviner, Balaam. This is Numbers 22, 5 through 14. Starting with Balak telling his messengers what to say. Behold, a people came out of Egypt. Behold, they cover the surface of the land, and they're living opposite me. Now, therefore, please come curse this people for me, since they're too mighty for me. Perhaps I may be able to defeat them and drive them out of the land. For I know that he whom you bless is blessed, and he whom you curse is cursed. So the elders of Moab and the elders of Midian departed with the fees for divination in their hand, and they came to Balaam and repeated Balak's words to him. He said to them, Spend the night here, and I'll bring word back to you as the Lord may speak to me. And the leaders of Moab stayed with Balaam. Then God came to Balaam and said, Who are these men with you? 
Balaam said to God, Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab, has sent word to me. Behold, there's a people who came out of Egypt, and they cover the surface of the land. Now come, curse them for me. Perhaps I may be able to fight against them and drive them out. God said to Balaam, Do not go with them. You shall not curse the people, for they are blessed. So Balaam arose in the morning and said to Balak's leaders, Go back to your land, for the Lord has refused to let me go with you. The leaders of Moab arose and went to Balak and said, Balaam refused to come with us. There's some curious stuff here. The text says that God spoke to Balaam. Not a God, but God, Elohim, the unique term for God used by the Hebrews. Who is this Balaam? You know, is he good? Is he bad? Is he like Melchizedek, the non-Hebrew priest to whom Abraham paid tithe? Is he like the wise men who come later from up in the same region to worship Jesus? You know, how does this guy hear from God? How does he speak with God? The text says that the elders of Moab and Midian pay him fees for divination. Well, that's not a good sign. We read ancient texts of battles which are not fought until generals, diviners see the right sign, an eagle that flies by, or a telling shape in the entrails of the sacrificed lamb, or something in the formation of the clouds or by casting lots. And the practice of divination was specifically forbidden in Leviticus 19.26. So to call Balaam a diviner makes us wonder about his character. You know, who is this guy? But God talks to Balaam, and Balaam talks back to God. More importantly, Balaam obeys God. Balaam even uses the covenant name of God, saying, Go back to your land for the Lord, Yahweh, has refused to let me go with you. This is really curious. Who is this guy? That's a great question. The story has not revealed much. That means we're not supposed to know much yet. We need to keep reading and see how the narrative unfolds. First, the messengers have to make the one-month trip back to Moab. When they do, Balak sends more distinguished messengers back to Balaam with a promise of more money and more honor. Numbers twenty-two sixteen to 22. They came to Balaam and said to him, Thus says Balak, the son of Zippor, Let nothing, I beg you, hinder you from coming to me. For I will indeed honor you richly, and I will do whatever you say to me. Please come then, curse this people for me. Balaam replied to the servants of Balak, Though Balak were to give me his house full of silver and gold, I could not do anything, either small or great, contrary to the command of the Lord my God. Now please, you also stay here tonight, and I will find out what else the Lord will speak to me. God came to Balaam at night and said to him, If the men have come to call you, rise up and go with them. But only the word which I speak to you shall you do. So Balaam arose in the morning and saddled his donkey and went with the leaders of Moab. But God was angry because he was going, and the angel of the Lord took his stand in the way as an adversary against him. What does verse 18 suggest about Balaam? Though Balak were to give me his house full of silver and gold, I could do nothing, either small or great, contrary to the command of the Lord my God. That sounds pretty faithful to God. Here, Balaam calls Yahweh my God at the same time that he refuses to accept money contrary to his understanding of God's will. So far, so good. God then tells Balaam to go with the men. So Balaam rises up early to go, but then God gets angry that he's going and sends an angel to oppose him. Wait a minute. God tells him to go. Then God gets angry that he is going. Well, that's not fair at all. 
that makes no sense. That's at least one of the typical responses I get from students when we study this text. That makes no sense. And you know what? That's right. Exactly. That makes no sense. So what do we do with it? And this is exactly the kind of passage I love to stumble across in Scripture. I have a really high view of the literary quality of the Bible. I don't think this is in here as a mistake. And I have a high view of the character of God. So when I come to something that looks incongruent or contradictory, I sit up and pay attention. This is intentional. This is a challenge from the author to make the reader think. This doesn't make sense. What's going on? Surprise and tension are both building blocks of a great story, and we've got both here. The text quickly turns on us. We doubted Balaam at the start when the text said he was sent a diviner's payment. What kind of pagan guy is this? But then he conversed with God, and he called God Yahweh, and he refused payment. That sounds like a good guy, a Melchizedek kind of guy. God's anger surprises us, especially since God just told him to go. Once again, we are facing that reality of biblical interpretation that the text often doesn't tell us the state of a person's heart, but expects us to infer the state of the heart according to the consequences that follow or according to God's interaction with the person. God's anger indicates that something is wrong with Balaam's heart. We'll have to see if that plays out in the narrative. We are wise to remember that just because someone claims the name of Yahweh, that doesn't mean that they have submitted to covenant relationship with Yahweh. God talks to people who've not trusted in him, and God uses people, even whole nations, that are opposed to him. There is one little hint in the text that becomes noticeable after God becomes angry. God had said to Balaam, go with them, but only the word which I speak to you shall you do. That's a caution. And so far, it seems like Balaam is okay with that. He said that he can't speak contrary to the command of the Lord. But what exactly does Balaam mean by that? He could mean that he's not willing to speak contrary to the Lord. I would never I would never say something contrary to what I think the Lord has said. He could also literally mean that he's not able to speak contrary to the Lord. If that's the case, he's telling the Moabite elders that he's not the one in control of the outcome. He has some kind of spiritual process that he has to follow. And whether he's being sincere about that or not sincere, he's letting them know, I'm not in control of this. The Lord is in control of this. You know, we can only wonder about God's anger here. We can think about it, but the text doesn't give us the state of Balaam's heart. We have to read on and see how it goes. So here's Numbers 22, 22 to 33. Now he was riding on his donkey and his two servants were with him. When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way with his drawn sword in his hand, the donkey turned off from the way and went into the field. But Balaam struck the donkey to turn her back into the way. Then the angel of the Lord stood in a narrow path of the vineyards, with a wall on this side and a wall on that side. When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she pressed herself to the wall and pressed Balaam's foot against the wall, so he struck her again. The angel of the Lord went further and stood in a narrow place where there was no way to turn to the right hand or the left. When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she lay down under Balaam. So Balaam was angry and he struck the donkey with his stick. And the Lord opened the mouth of the donkey. And she said to Balaam, what have I done to you that you've struck me these three times? Then Balaam said to the donkey, because you have made a mockery of me 
If there had been a sword in my hand, I would have killed you by now. The donkey said to Balaam, Am I not your donkey on which you have ridden all your life to this day? Have I ever been accustomed to do so to you? And he said, No. Then the Lord opened the eyes of Balaam, and he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way with his drawn sword in his hand, and he bowed all the way to the ground. The angel of the Lord said to him, Why have you struck your donkey these three times? Behold, I have come out as an adversary, because your way was contrary to me. But the donkey saw me and turned aside from me these three times. If she had not turned aside from me, I would surely have killed you just now and let her live. Of course, the first thing we want to know is what's going on here with a donkey speaking. You know, did God cause Balaam to hallucinate that the donkey was speaking such that it was just in his mind? Did God speak for the donkey? Or did God actually give the donkey speech? We don't know. And we shouldn't let our curiosity, it's okay to have curiosity, but we shouldn't let our curiosity about the donkey distract us from the incredible irony that God has created in this story. Who is the great prophet diviner here? Well, it's not the donkey, but who sees the spiritual reality? Who's aware of the spiritual danger? Well, it's not Balaam. The famous international diviner doesn't see a thing. The donkey has all the insight. The donkey speaks the truth. That's humiliating and telling. I wonder if Moses wants us to remember what God told him at his calling at the burning bush. God kept saying he had chosen Moses, and Moses kept pushing back. I've never been eloquent, for I'm slow of speech and slow of tongue. Getting frustrated by this point, God rebukes Moses. Who has made man's mouth? Or who makes him dumb or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now then go, and I, even I, will be with your mouth and teach you what you are to say. Balaam receives a similar rebuke, and he seems to really receive it. It doesn't mean that he's fully God's man, but he, he is humbled, and he does repent. He seems to get something out of it. Balaam said to the angel of the Lord, I have sinned, for I did not know that you were standing in the way against me. Now then, if it is displeasing to you, I will turn back. But the angel of the Lord said to Balaam, Go with the men, but you shall speak only the word which I tell you. So Balaam went along with the leaders of Balak. Did you notice the repetition? Go with the men, but you shall speak only the word which I tell you. That's the same thing God told Balaam before he left, right before he got mad at him. The repetition affirms that we're dealing with some kind of heart issue. Balaam had gone, but in some sense, he was going on his own terms, and God needs to give him a heart adjustment, a humbling. That's what happens with the donkey. Now God determines that Balaam really is ready to go. Maybe now he's learned the lesson that Joseph understood about true prophecy. It is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. Balaam has been humbled. Now God will make him speak. When he arrives in Moab, Balak is a bit peeved that he didn't come the first time he was asked. We see that in Numbers twenty-two thirty-six to 38. When Balak heard that Balaam was coming, he went out to meet him at the city of Moab, which is on the Arnon border at the extreme end of the border. Then Balak said to Balaam, Did I not urgently send to you to call you? Why did you not come to me? Am I really unable to honor you? So Balaam said to Balak, Behold, I have come now to you. Am I able to speak anything at all? The word that God puts in my mouth, that I shall speak. Seems like Balaam learned the lesson of the donkey. Balaam will make three attempts at a curse and then add a plus one prophecy for free. 
I'm not going to read through all four prophecies, but we'll hit some highlights. To establish the pattern, let's do read the first example, both how Balak sets everything up and the words of the curse. So Numbers 22, 39 through 23, 6. And Balaam went with Balak, and they came to Kiriath-Huzoth. Balak sacrificed oxen and sheep and sent some to Balaam and the leaders who were with him. Then it came about in the morning that Balak took Balaam and brought him up to the high place of Baal. And he saw from there a portion of the people. Then Balaam said to Balak, Build seven altars for me here, and prepare seven bulls and seven rams for me here. Balak did just as Balaam had spoken, and Balak and Balaam offered up a bull and a ram on each altar. Then Balaam said to Balak, Stand beside your burnt offering, and I will go. Perhaps the Lord will come to meet me, and whatever he shows me I will tell you. So he went to a bare hill. Now God met Balaam, and he said to him, I have set up the seven altars, and I have offered up a bull and a ram on each altar. Then the Lord put a word in Balaam's mouth and said, Return to Balak, and you shall speak thus. So he returned to him, and behold, he was standing beside his burnt offering, he and all the leaders of Moab. They are at a Moabite town. Balak makes sacrifice for a feast for Balaam and the elders. Then Balaam goes up on a hill, hears from God. He tells Balak to prepare a costly sacrifice, seven bulls, seven rams. Then Balaam goes up on the hill again after the sacrifice, and he comes down and delivers the curse. That's Numbers 23, 7 to 10. From Aram, Balak has brought me, Moab's king from the mountains of the east. Come, curse Jacob for me, and come, denounce Israel. How shall I curse whom God has not cursed, and how can I denounce whom the Lord has not denounced? As I see from the top of the rocks, and I look at him from the hills, Behold, a people who dwells apart and will not be reckoned among the nations. Who can count the dust of Jacob or number the fourth part of Israel? Let me die the death of the upright and let my end be like his. Well, the curse turns out to be not much of a curse at all, more of a prophecy of blessing. In the second phrase, verse 8, Balaam clearly invokes Yahweh. How can I denounce whom Yahweh has not? And we still don't know Balaam's exact relationship to Yahweh. We don't know whether Balaam earned his fame always calling on Yahweh, or whether the point was to call on the specific God, the people you're trying to curse. You know, is he only calling on Yahweh because he's been asked to curse Israel? Maybe that's the way you do it. We don't know. We just know that Balaam keeps his communication directed to Yahweh, and he's made to speak the words that God puts into his mouth. The lesson of the donkey is being played out. Balak's not happy, but he decides to try again, making one change. He takes Balaam to a place of higher elevation. You know, let's get up closer to God. He'll try the same thing a third time. You know, this time, Balaam just went up on a hill outside the city. Next, Balak will try a field at the top of Mount Pisgah. Finally, he tries the top of Mount Peor, even higher up, saying, perhaps it will be agreeable to God that you curse them for me there. Balaam treats God like all pagans treat God, whether they're ancient pagans or modern pagans. Also, sometimes the way we treat God, you know, if we change up the formula, maybe we can please God or manipulate him into doing what we want him to do. Balak's part is to change the height, the location of the prophecy. We also notice change within the prophecies. For example, Balaam's spiritual insight seems to increase with each. And he begins the third and fourth this way. The oracle of Balaam, the son of Beor, and the oracle of the man whose eye is opened. 
the oracle of him who hears the words of God, who sees the vision of the Almighty, falling down, yet having his eyes uncovered. We have the speaking lesson from the donkey. Balaam can only speak what God gives him to speak. These words focus on the seeing lesson from the donkey. Spiritual truth can only be understood if God gives a person eyes to see. And the verse falling down yet having his eyes uncovered applies to the humiliating experience with the donkey. It is often necessary to be humbled in order to truly see. Balaam was humbled, and in being humbled, his eyes are uncovered, falling down, yet having his eyes uncovered, he sees. Balak has increased the height to try to get closer to God, but God has taught Balaam the message that you can't speak what I don't give you to speak, and you can't see what I don't let you see. I'm in control of this. You don't manipulate me to curse Israel. And and so the move backfires. Balak tries to manipulate God. It's not going to work. And what happens is an ever-increasing blessing for Israel from oracle to oracle. We see an intensification and a heightening of Israel's strength and position. In the first oracle, the Israelites are simply a people who dwells apart and a people who cannot be counted. In the second oracle, we're told the shout of the king is among them. And they are described as a lioness that will not lie down until it devours its prey. That's not something the king of Moab wants to hear. It's heightened in the third oracle. Israel is described as a spreading garden, and his king shall be higher than Agag, and his kingdom shall be exalted. This nation goes to battle with horns of a wild ox, and now in this oracle, he's a male lion. He, He couches, he lies down as a lion, and as a lion, who dares rouse him? After the third oracle, Balak's anger burns against Balaam, and with good reason, brought in to curse Israel, Balaam curses Moab. And he uses the words of the Abrahamic promise to do it. He ends the oracle this way, speaking about Israel. Blessed is everyone who blesses you, and cursed is everyone who curses you. Well, who's cursing Israel? Moab. So who's going to be cursed? Moab. Balak ends Balaam's employment without honor, without pay. It seems a mark of Balaam's reputation that Balak doesn't end his life as well. Balaam responds, what else could I do? I could only say what is given me to say. Then he adds an unasked for oracle that lifts Israel up to an even higher point. The oracles have successively heightened the language of kingship and of military might. This last one goes even a step further. This is Numbers twenty four seventeen b through 18. A star shall come forth from Jacob. A scepter shall rise from Israel and shall crush the forehead of Moab and tear down all the sons of Sheth. Edom shall be a possession. Seir, its enemies, also will be a possession, while Israel performs valiantly. Now, this prophecy takes the proclamation of king in Israel to a whole new height, especially from our vantage point looking back. We see that this is going to be King David, but even beyond King David, this is messianic. A star shall come forth from Jacob, a scepter shall rise from Israel. Balaam ends as one of the great prophets of the Old Testament. His oracles make it into the text of Scripture. 
as thus saith the Lord. He spoke the very word of God. And there's little in his interaction with Balak to make us doubt Balaam's faithfulness. There's only one little hint of foreshadowing that readers would miss um, the first few times they read the story, but then you read it enough and you see a connection. When Balak fired Balaam, Balaam said to Balak, and now behold, I'm going to my people, come and I will advise you what this people will do to your people in the days to come. I will advise you. What does that mean? What kind of advice? Well, at first it sounds like a parting shot where Balaam says he's going to tell Balak how badly Israel is going to beat up on Moab in days to come. That's sort of what he's just said about his prophecy of King David coming and crushing the forehead of Moab. But is is that all this means or alludes to? Does Balaam have some other advice or counsel for Balak? Well, we're going to see. So after we receive this wonderful prophecy of blessing and grandeur for Israel, which includes the language of Abrahamic covenant and a foreshadowing of the future Messiah, we are reminded of the great problem of human covenant with Yahweh. We're going to see this with the sin at Peor. You know, how does the burning holy fire of God dwell on the dry bush that is Israel. The first generation of Egypt seems particularly skilled in pointing out how big a problem this is. This is Numbers 25, 1 through 5. While Israel remained at Shittim, the people began to play the harlot with the daughters of Moab. For they invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel joined themselves to Baal of Peor, and the Lord was angry against Israel. The Lord said to Moses, Take all the leaders of the people and execute them in broad daylight before the Lord, so that the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. So Moses said to the judges of Israel, Each of you slay his men who have joined themselves to Baal of Peor. The sin of Peor involves harlotry in both the literal sense of sexual relations with the Moabites and Midianites, and also the metaphoric sense of false worship with other gods. The dynamic here has a parallel with Exodus. At the beginning of the Balaam story, the enemy appears to be outside Israel. You know, nations want to go to war and so seek spiritual power to aid them in that effort. God turns their strategy back against them, declaring his intent to protect Israel, lifting them up as a mighty nation victorious over their enemies. In Exodus, the big problem appeared to be Egypt. Here, the big problem seems to be the Moab-Midian alliance. But in the very next chapter after Balaam's prophecy, we immediately see, as with the Exodus story, that the enemy to worry about is not outside the people of God, but inside the people of God. It is their own sinful hearts and their own lack of spiritual fortitude that is going to be their downfall. Without even having crossed the River Jordan yet, The people disobey the warning, the specific warning God gave them at Sinai not to cave into the pagan culture, not to be attracted away through relationship, through romantic relationship, to accept and embrace this pagan culture. But they willingly go. They are tempted into the worship of gods that are not God. The sin of Peor ends with Phinehas, a grandson of Aaron, who acts on Moses' command, 
and executes a brazen Israelite who flaunts his relationship with a Midianite woman in the middle of the Israelite camp. And God praises Phinehas, saying of him, He was jealous with my jealousy among them, so that I did not destroy the sons of Israel in my jealousy. The zeal of Phinehas became famous in Israel as the example of a man whose heart is really burning for the glory of God. This Phinehas was a priest of the second generation out of Egypt. And his action, even though it's a very harsh action, a harsh judgment coming in the middle of a plague and in the anger of God against Israel, Phinehas himself is an example of righteousness and the righteousness of the second generation. So it's ending really badly for the first generation, but positively for the second generation. His action completes the transition from that grumbling, rebellious generation. We're done with the old. It is now time for the new. The next chapter, chapter 26, begins with the census of the second generation and that report that the first generation has died out all but Joshua and Caleb and Moses, but he will also soon die. The period of the wilderness is over. It's now time to prepare to enter the land. So most of the third section of Numbers, chapters 26 to 36, deals with laws for preparation to enter. And there is in this last section a narrative of one more battle. The second generation engages these treacherous Moabites and Midianites, and they achieve complete victory. The story of the battle also completes for us the story of Balaam with two brief passages. We finally get to see the state of his heart. Numbers 31.8 tells us they killed the kings of Midian along with the rest of their slain, Evi and Rechem and Jur and Hur and Reba, the five kings of Midian. They also killed Balaam, the son of Beor, with the sword. Balaam. What's he doing there? What's he doing still with Moab and Midian? Two more verses tell us, Numbers 31, 15, and 16. And Moses said to them, Have you spared all the women? Behold, these caused the sons of Israel through the counsel of Balaam to trespass against the Lord in the matter of Peor. So the plague was among the congregation of the Lord. This This is the quality of biblical narrative. It's just been drawing out this idea of who is this Balaam? You know, we've been set up all along to wonder about him. What what kind of man is he? You know, with whom does his allegiance truly lie? And we've been getting some mixed signals. Here we get final confirmation. Balaam's allegiance lies with Balaam. When he was fired by Balak, he said, I will go, but first I will advise you. And so we see he did. He gave counsel. Balaam encouraged a friendly policy of interaction with Israel, something like this. Tempt them away from their God with your women and with feasts to the God. That's the only way that you're going to bring wrath on Israel. Use sexuality to entice them into worship of your own gods. If you can do that, God will punish them for you. And that plan almost worked. The Balaam story is an intriguing example of prophecy. True prophecy may or may not come out of the faithfulness of a prophet's heart. The minimum requirement is a willingness 
to repeat the words that are given. Now, we wonder if Balaam became a faithful believer in Yahweh. He obeys God. His words are sound. His ministry is sound. He gets results. So we might be shocked by his end to see him with the enemy. We're shocked when fruitful, biblical, skillful Christian evangelists and musicians and pastors have their hidden sin uncovered and revealed when they commit adultery, when they embezzle funds, when they walk away from Jesus. If we walk with God long enough, we learn that a man can be gifted by God without having a heart for God. He can be faithful in communicating the truth of God. He can even have a real impact on other people for the glory of God. People's lives can be changed, and yet he himself not be right at all with God in his inner life. The gifted man may have accepted that there is real power and influence in communicating the words of God. You know, he's figured out that's how you build a church or a ministry or a family. And yet, without letting it become apparent on the outside, he's really in it for himself. He is communicating the glories of God for his own glory. He may not even be able to fully admit that to anybody. His own motives have become so mixed up in his message His own skillfulness and fruitfulness and honor in ministry have become his identity. It's ultimately about him, not about God. He is serving God, but he's not seeking to know God. He's seeking to gain the glory that the service brings. His self-glory comes by attaching himself to God's glory. Balaam was spiritually gifted by God. He was given skill and insight We don't know about his previous life. We never get that story. But in this story, he's humbled by God. He repents. He speaks the truth. He's used by God. He communicates biblical truth, a part of the Bible. He contributes to the Bible. By taking part in proclaiming the glory of God, he himself was glorified. You know, most men would have just spoken a curse and taken the gold. These men are even easier to understand, a true charlatan. Balaam is this more complex case of the man who is truly being used by God and maybe even truly believes in this message that he's telling other people. But in, in, internally, he's, Jesus is not the bread of life. He's not feeding off of his relationship with God. He's feeding off of his own success and glory in ministry. It was never really about God for Balaam. Balaam was serving Balaam. And so Balaam's name has become associated with so-called believers who distort biblical truth to tempt the people of God into accepting societal norms of sexuality and idolatry that are in opposition to God. Balaam is known for his final counsel to Balak. This is how you ruin the people of God. You tempt them with the pleasures of society, with the gods of society, or at least with conform, getting their vision of God to conform with society. John made this connection. Writing in Revelation 2.14 to the church in Pergamum, he states, I have a few things against you because you have there some who hold the teaching of Balaam, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit acts of immorality. 
leaders who say that the church ought to conform to secular systems of belief and behavior in order to make the church attractive and relevant and prevent the loss of numbers have fallen in line with the Council of Balaam. They claim that the only way to keep the church alive is to become like the surrounding culture, to accept the surrounding values, even if they're contrary to the out-of-date values of the Bible. And Balaam could tell them, on the contrary, conforming to cultural norms of behavior and conforming to a cultural vision of God that is opposed to the biblical vision is actually the most sure way to kill your church. That's the advice I gave Balak, and it almost worked. If you would like the text of this lesson with some reflection questions, or if you'd like to see overview charts that go along with our study of the Pentateuch, then check out the resource page at observetheword.com.